Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Aaron Numata. Aaron is Senior Vice President at Folio Literary Management. Aaron, how's it going? It's going great. How are you? Really excited to have you on board. My first question to all of our guests is always, where are you in the world right now? I know Folio is based in New York City, but you're in London, right? I am. I am in London, England, which is where I live at the moment. And does that mean you work remote from London? Do you travel to New York a lot? How does that affect you since I know the hub of agencies is in New York City? Yeah, I work only in the U.S. market and my office is in New York City, but I work remotely here in London. I fly into New York three, four times a year or more if I need to or less if I don't need to. I still go to writers' conferences. I was just at a writers' conference in L.A. and one in New York. So I'm still active there. I come back when I'm needed. Before we get into what exactly it means to be an agent, would you mind walking us through how you got to this point? How does one get from maybe an aspiring agent to being the SVP? Well, I was an editor for many years. I started out at Touchstone in Simon & Schuster. And from there, I went over to HarperCollins, where I was an editor for a few years. Then I became senior editor and then editorial director of Avalon Books which was bought about 10 years ago by Amazon Publishing, which is now called Montlake. And before I left there, I had a baby and decided I didn't want to work 80-hour weeks and became an agent. So I started up with Folio when they started 13 years ago, 12 years ago. I'm not quite sure how many years ago it was. And I was a regular agent. And I just, you know, you have to sell a certain amount and bring in a certain amount to make it to SBP, which I've done and have been for about seven years now. That's how I got to where I am now. So we normally frame our episodes around certain themes. Sometimes we talk to comic writers. Sometimes we talk to authors and editors. I would love to talk to you about writing from a literary agent's perspective, find out exactly you know, what it means to be an agent. Are you cool to uh, school us on all that? Yeah, absolutely. My first question, as we mentioned, you are an SVP at Folio. How does that differ from, let's say, an agent, an associate agent? Do you still have the same responsibilities? Yeah. Being where you are is just how long you've been there, how many things you've sold, your client list, how they're doing, and so on and so forth. But the job is basically the same. We all do the same work. You know, to be an agent, you have to have a client list and you have to sell a certain amount of books and, you know, maintain those careers of the writers. As far as what your role entails being an agent, we've heard that agents discover authors, they work with authors to get their manuscripts mm-hmm. to a point where it's ready to be published. They yes. help build writers' careers over time. Would you say that's an accurate summary? Are there any things I'm missing in there? No, that's an accurate summary. Oftentimes, people submit to me. I get about anywhere from 20 to 25 submissions a week. But then again, you know, I have a staff of people who read through all of them. I never read anything first. 
But then I go after people. If I see somebody that I like, like there is a client that I have right now, his name is Grant Melton. He is one of the folks on the Rachel Ray show. He does a lot of the desserts and drinks and so on for her. He writes for Food 52. I saw him, loved him. I went after him. And we're about to go out with his book in a couple of weeks. So it's not always them coming to me. Sometimes it's me going to them. And that goes for most agents. We're always on the lookout and people are always bringing things to us. I know on your Twitter, you mentioned that you represent commercial women's fiction, historical fiction, mystery, thrillers, beauty, history, health, parenting, and lifestyle. What makes you different as opposed to another agent? I think it's just everything is subjective. People like things. People don't like things. There are some people out there that would write women's fiction that does not appeal to me for whatever reason that is. So I wouldn't be the right agent for them. I know what I like and I gravitate towards what I want. And I get along very well with just about all of my clients. We have good relationships. We talk a lot. I keep them informed. They know exactly where their projects are every step of the way, who has it, who's reading it. We plot what their next books would be. And I always have a plan. I like to do five-year plans. Where would you like to see yourself in 10 years from now? Let's get the goal towards that. I like to work very closely with my clients, which is why I do not have a huge list. A lot of agents have 60, 70 clients. I keep mine to 25 to 30 at all times, and they're not all active at the same time. I don't like to get overwhelmed. I like to give everybody personal attention. I don't fob them off on my assistant or on interns. It's a personal experience for me. If they're successful, I'm successful. If they're not successful, I'm not successful. And I like to keep it that way. What's the most fun part of your job? Letting somebody know I've sold their book or they have a new publisher. That's the best part. Telling them, guess what? You're going to be published by whom and this, that, and the other thing. That is the best part whatsoever. The shrieks that come down the phone. And it's from women and men who shriek very loudly, I might add. For those aspiring agents who are listening, what skills make for a good agent? What are those things, those qualities that you possess that have led your success so far? Not taking no personally. That comes from editors saying no to the projects that you have. And we call them beauty contests. When you really, really want to represent somebody, but they've got other agents interested and they decide to go with another agent. I don't take that. Some people get angry and like, I don't want to ever read their book or whatever. You know, this agent rejected me. I'm never going to submit to them again. You can't be like that. You have to be you know, this is a job. It is not personal. It is business. You smile, you thank them, and then you try again with the next book. And if somebody doesn't, I can't tell you how many times somebody signed with another agent. It didn't go well or whatever. And a year or two later, they come back saying, will you represent me now? Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. Just depends on the situation. But I don't take anything personally. I treat it as the business it should be. For the writers that are listening, I'd like to spend a little time talking about the query letter process. Yes. Is there a suggested formatting for a query letter? Is there a secret to how everything should be laid out? No, I don't think so. I mean, I get queries from all kinds. I get them like an old-fashioned letter with you know their address and there and <laughs> subject line and all the rest of that. You know, I don't need that to stand out because I do get a lot of submissions to stand out know something about either Folio or one of my clients that you can point out to me. A lot of people say, I read in your profile that you like historical fiction. So I think that you'll like mine. I'm like, this person has done their homework. That's terrific. I don't like it when I get 
a blanket email that's sent to every single person at Folio and every single person at every other agency. There's about 200 people on the email. There was one that was just going around a little while ago where it was a man who was quite arrogant in his email. I just deleted it as most people did. You know, you can't just throw everything at the wall and expect something to stick. It needs to be a little bit personal so that it shows you've done your homework. I think that's that's the best thing. Just tell people what your book is. You don't have to wax on and on. I have people who tell me that, you know, my mother read this book and so did my best friend. They think it's the greatest thing they've ever read, which I'm sure is true. But I don't need to know that. I just need the facts in the query letter. You mentioned that it's good when people personalize query letters, but can a query letter be too personalized? Have you found that sometimes people might do a little too much research and then cater it to you and talk about, you know, your favorite foods or things like that? If they knew what my favorite foods (laughs) was, that would be absolutely shocking. I might call the police because I don't even know what my favorite foods are. So um, that would be a bit much. But there's one thing that some people do and... I can always tell when somebody's queried me if I haven't even looked into my query inbox yet because they're asking to follow me on Instagram. They're now following me on Twitter. They're trying to follow me on Tumblr and Facebook and everything else. If I suddenly get somebody who's trying to follow everything, I'm like, this person has just discovered me. They've submitted to me and they want to be my best friend right off the bat. And I don't accept anything until it's been read and decided if I'm going to take them on or not because I don't like to give false hope. Of course. If that makes sense, yeah. So I wouldn't stalk the agent or the editor at all or email too often. Somebody will send something and three days later say, I haven't heard from you. Can you let me know if you get this? I can't do that with everybody. I have a six-week turnaround in place. If you haven't heard from me in six weeks, you can respond again. And at what stage should a manuscript be at before a writer says, you know what, I'm going to take this and I'm going to write a query letter and I'm going to submit it to an agent? It needs to be complete. You have to have it complete because if I read it and I say, this looks terrific, you know, can you send me 50 pages or a hundred pages and you send in a hundred pages? It's not just me reading. In fact, it has to go through two other readers before it even gets to me. And I only read the full. I have my team, my assistant gets all of the submissions. She parcels it out to readers and interns and so on and so forth to do readers reports. And then she'll decide if they're sent to me or not. If somebody said, this is really terrific, you should get another reader on it, a second reader will read it. And they will read full manuscripts before they present them to me. So if you get accepted, oh, you know, and you've only written 100 pages, and you're like, well, I'll give it to you in a year, we will have moved past you and forgotten you by the time you're ready to send it back in. So be ready. Sometimes there'll be moments where you read a query, and I assume every once in a while, a lightning bolt will kind of go off and you'll say, wow, this is amazing. I definitely want to you know, move forward with this or explore this more. What do you think the secrets are to those type of ideas? Is it just a really good idea? Is it the way that it's worded? Well, it has to be two things. You can have an absolutely terrific idea for a book and you've absolutely crushed the synopsis. And I'm like, wow, this is right up my alley. It speaks to everything that I absolutely love. And then I start to read it and the writing is terrible. That's why most editors ask for a synopsis and the first three chapters or 25 pages or whatever it is. They want to see if you can tell a story and then if you can execute it well. If those two things are in place and I'm overexcited about it, it's because I'm reading it and I'm like, I know that this editor at this house is going to love it. This is absolutely perfect. This editor over here, I'm already building my submission list in my head while absolutely devouring the book. That's when I know I've got a winner. And that's what I say to my readers. I want something that is so good, 
you get excited, you can't put it down, you forget to eat lunch, you don't want to leave the office because you're still reading, or you stay up until three o'clock in the morning to finish it. That's how excited I want people to be when they're reading something for me. You said that sometimes the idea is great, but the writing is terrible. When you say terrible, is it because the wording itself isn't as eloquent, or is it because the story structure, or is it a little bit of both? It can be both. I mean, everybody makes typos. I can forgive things like that. That's why God created editors and copy editors. But if you just can't string a sentence together, or if, I mean, there's so many different ways to be a poor writer. I think that writing is a talent. Either you've got it or you don't. You can improve the way that you write, but some people are just natural storytellers and it's, you know, effortless for them to write something and captivate people. And then there's people who have terrific ideas who just can't execute them because their writing is just not up to the mark. I don't know how to explain it. Do you have suggestions for those writers who are maybe feeling like that? Like maybe they've got great ideas, but they need help getting better at, you know, whether it's structure or wordplay? Yep. Last year, I got a master's degree in creative writing here in the UK. And one of the things that we did was have somebody else read things out that you have written. Because when you're reading it, you miss things. You can't edit yourself. Nobody can edit yourself. But if you give it to somebody else to read it from their perspective and you can hear them reading it, it's a different story to them. And I can't tell you how many times somebody was reading something of mine. I was like, you know what? I can do that so much better. And everyone else felt the same way. Hearing your work read out loud can be a huge tool in rewriting, especially for dialogue, especially with dialogue. That's just one little thing that can help people improve their writing. Having writing partners, critiques, critique partners, joining workshops, being part of a writing group, taking writing lessons, all of these things can help people who have, you know, talent be even better. And people who are okay, just, you know, learn how to craft themselves and tell a story better. You said that sometimes you reach out to authors yourself without a query letter. What are the factors Mm -hmm. that play into why you would want to work with an author and go after them yourself? Are there a particular, maybe they had a success with another book that has hype, maybe something about them as a person? Well, the first person I ever approached, and that was about 13 years ago, was a woman who had a grammar column in a now defunct Microsoft page. I can't remember what it was called, but her name is Martha Brockenbro. And uh, she's a fantastic writer. And I went after her because I loved her column. I was like, yeah, I think you're terrific. You're wonderful. Do you want to do a book? And she said, sure. So I sold her book, which it's still in print, things that make me sick, S-I-C in brackets, you know, like, and it was all about grammar and so on and so forth. And the book did well and all the rest of it. And she's written a couple of other books for me. I represent the Discovery Channel. She wrote Shark Week and she wrote Finding Bigfoot for me. But she writes children's books and is a huge success on her own. I don't represent her for her children's books. She has a different agent for that. But I went after her and that was so successful that I have chased other authors to bring into the fold. Another one is a woman named Charlotte Cho. She owns Soko Glam. She was one of the first people to bring Korean skincare products to the U.S., and has made a huge success. And we did a book called Little Book of Skincare that's been out for about four years now and has done quite well. I went after her to get that book. You know, it's just something that appeals to me, like grammar or skincare. And I see the person, I realize they don't have a book after doing research, and I just chase after them to go and sign them up. You mentioned that you represent the Discovery Channel, I believe, right? Yeah. 
How does that work? I know obviously agents represent authors. Do you represent multiple companies in that sense? Are you trying to find them partners? How does that work? Well, 10 years ago, I was working with one of my clients, a woman who did a bunch of pets books, and she teamed up with a now defunct show from a million years ago. They wanted to do a uh, book together with this guy. And he wanted, because he had a show on Discovery, he wanted to partner with Discovery. So I worked with them and they they liked the way that I worked. So we started doing other books and I uh, sold the first two Cake Boss books, Buddy Velastro, and we've done multiple books with the shows. Sometimes I pitch to them, sometimes they pitch to me. And, you know, we've done Honey Boo Boo and Extreme Couponing. I mean, it's been 10 years, so we've done a ton of books together. And hopefully we'll continue to do books together. They do other books without me with the talent and so on. I'm not exclusive, but it's nice to have that uh, signed deal with them that I can represent a bunch of their books and I work with their licensing team to come up with ideas and so on. For nonfiction, I imagine you work just as much on nonfiction as fiction maybe? Yeah. What's the difference on the query letter for that? Because we've heard that for nonfiction, the book isn't necessarily already to the same point that a fiction book is. Well, nonfiction books are sold on proposal. It's a proposed idea of what the book is going to be you know, the chapter outlines of it, what the book is going to be, the audience, the platform, and so on and so forth, the message. Based on that, you can sell a nonfiction book to a publisher, and then they have a certain amount of time that they need to write and hand in the book. Most of them are based on platform. You have to have a rock-solid platform to get a nonfiction book done. You have to be an expert in your field or a celebrity or a very big name or have the backing of a very big company behind you to do well for the most part. That's not for everyone, but uh, the majority is that way. Once you decide to take on a book or an author, I should say, what does that first initial call look like? I know you said earlier that fun part is when you get the book sold, but what about when you take on a new client? Well, it's Whenever I go to offer somebody representation, I call them and they know I'm calling and, you know, we have a nice conversation and I'm like, I'd like to offer representation. Here's my deal. And usually they get very excited. Most of the time they need time to think about it. Sometimes they don't. They're like, you're everything I ever wanted ever. (laughs) Sign me up. And that makes me very excited. When I have to go into a beauty contest, I'm like, darn, I don't want to be in a beauty contest at all. But, you know, I strap on my high heels and I do the walk. So, you know, they like to speak to other clients of mine. They have different questions. Sometimes they want to look at, you know, other deals that I've done or our boilerplate retainer agreement. They all have different questions. And you can tell who's been on the blogs and who's been reading the stuff and who's getting advice from writers groups. You can always tell when people have done their homework. And I admire that. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. 
The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favourite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flicker and Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flicker and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. What does that initial period look like between when you take on a new client to when you get to the point in which you want to submit it to an editor? I imagine there's definitely some working together there and getting the book to the right stage? Yes. If it's fiction, I usually give them editorial notes and I have them rewrite it. I was just talking about this earlier. We had in some master creative writing students in and I was telling them that we as agents, we have it rewritten to the highest standard so that when we send it out to editors, it's still broad enough that it can appeal to many different people because different imprints and different editors have different ideas and like different things, and they're going to have them edit it once again. So they will then tune it down to whatever their imprint is or their ideas or what they think is going to work. So we try to keep it a little more generic, if that makes sense to you. But I was an editor for almost 20 years before I became an agent. So that is something that I can shine at. I can help somebody really polish their manuscript so that we can sell it. And then, you know, not everybody likes it. You know, some people pass on it saying it just didn't work for me. And then it sells to somebody else. And that's just the way it goes. With a nonfiction proposal, I work with them to, you know, help polish the marketing section or the bio or the chapter outlines or the message of it. I've been working with one woman recently who had a terrific idea. We're not ready to go out with her book, so I don't want to say what it is yet. She came to me with a great idea, but I thought it could be better. And we've been working together for several months over the summer to fine-tune it. And it is so much better now. The entire message of it, I think, is going to be absolutely terrific. And she's very excited about it. But it wasn't at all the book that she came to me originally. Together, we worked to get it to where it is. And then hopefully it will sell. And I'll let you know when it does so you can see which book I was talking about. Using that book as an example without going into what it is, what are the specific things that you worked on? Was it structural? It was. Her platform was interesting and the idea was interesting. And I said, you can't just come in and tell these stories because there's really no narrative arc to tie it all together. What is the takeaway for a person if they invest, you know, two, three, four days reading your book? What are they going to get out of it? And with this, they're just going to shut the book and be like, well, there's a bunch of hours I'm not going to get back. I was highly amused, but, you know, it's not enough. So we turned it into just her telling stories into what she learned along the way. So it has more depth to it. It's much more entertaining and people can walk away from it who are going through a similar thing thinking I am not alone. So we've changed the whole tone and direction of the book, and it's much better for it. And at what point do you know you're ready to submit to editors? Is there one moment where you're like, you know what? I know 100% this is ready to go. Well, it's almost ready to go. We're just working on her marketing part. We've done all the chapter outlines, all the sample chapters have been edited and focused, and that's all terrific. All the competitive titles are all in there, her bio, 
all of it is ready. I just need her marketing section put in and then we will be good to go. So I'm hoping that that will go out in the next two weeks. And what does your pitch to editors look like for a fiction book? How much different is your query to editors than the one you received from the author? Not that much different because they basically will do the same thing. I don't use the same letter because sometimes the book has changed. I'm old school. I like to call editors before I send it. Not in every case, but in some cases, I'll call them and say, you know, I've got a really great one here. Are you interested? And they'll be like, terrific. And then I send it over with the cover letter. Or sometimes it just goes out with the cover letter, depending on the book and who the editor is. But I say, you know, I'm very excited. Here is this person, whether they're debut author or they've been around the block, you know, a little introduction of who they are, what the book is about. And then I tell them, you know, the book plot and say, you know, I look forward to hearing from you. And that's basically it. I give them about two, three weeks, and then I hound them if nobody's already <laughs> gotten back to me. <laughs> How important is your relationship with editors and the quantity of relationships with the editors? Obviously, agents who have just started, one of the things they're looking to do, I would imagine, is to meet editors, to go out to coffee with editors, yeah. build those relationships. For you, you've been in the business for a little while. How important is that that you probably have a larger repertoire of editors? Well, I mean, I've been around for a while and, you know, I've used to work with a lot of the editors who are now people in charge, which is nice. But people come and go all the time. Imprints expand and new people fill in. And if I don't know somebody, I'll ask another agent at Folio, you know, do you know this person? And I will call them. If I do not know a person personally, I will call them and introduce myself because I'm not in New York. I'm in the UK. I can't go to lunch with new people unless I'm in New York. And when I'm in New York, my dance card is filled. I'm going out and seeing editors <laughs> and you know, old friends and all the rest of it. And it's another reason why I like to go to conferences. I was just at the Romance Writers of America, which was in New York City. And I mean, I hadn't been to one in years and I knew so many people in the place. It was so nice to see so many people that I hadn't seen and meet a whole bunch of new people. It's good to keep relationships open. The most important thing when you meet editors is to find out what they like, to see if they are like-minded. If you like the same things that an editor likes, they most likely will buy what you have. I have several books with the same editors, with different authors with the same editors. And when they move imprints, I move my authors with them sometimes. So it's good to cultivate these relationships of people who are like-minded in what you love to read and what you represent. What would you say the percentage is relationship with editor and quality of the query that you send to them? Is it 50-50? Is it more so the relationship? It just depends on what it is. That's why, remember earlier I said when I'm reading something, I'm very excited about it. I start thinking right off the bat of who is going to like it. Not everybody I know is going to like it. I'll get the list off the top of my head, and then I will fill it in by researching who else has bought this in the last six months, what other people have bought a book that is similar in vein and tone and so on. And I will submit to them as well, even if I don't know them. So I guess it is 50-50. Would you say there is a secret to, just as I asked about the query to you, is there one thing you do that you found works? Or is that a trade secret you might not want to tell us? It's really different with every single book and who you're submitting to. And it's funny, sometimes like I get something like, this is going to fly. This is, <laughs> everybody's going to snap this up. I mean, this is just a sure thing. And, you know, it's crickets for weeks. And then there's something I'm like, you know, this is really cute, but I don't know how it's going to go. I'll send it to a small list just in case. And, you know, I get a call the day after I send it. And I was like, absolutely love this. I'm taking it to Ed Board. I'm like, all right, well, there you go. <laughs> you know, so 
I think I know everything. I know nothing. So Once a book gets picked up by a publisher and the writer starts working together with the editor, what is your involvement? I know that sometimes agents can kind of stay involved. They can step out, start working on other things. What is your particular involvement from there? It depends, again, on the different editors and the different books. For the most part, though, you step out. You don't need too many chefs in the kitchen, especially when the editor takes it. It is no longer my book to edit. It is the editor's book to make sure that it is up to snuff for their publishing company. So you stay out of it. If there is a problem, uh, if the writer is unhappy or needs an extension on their deadline or doesn't like their cover or whatever, Instead of them going in to fight the battle, they will call me and be like, kill, I don't want to, I don't like that cover. And then I will go in and be like, we don't like the cover. Can you do something about this? And for the most part, you know, they change it or we have a conversation where it's worked on or the deadline is extended. I call myself the heavy. I'm the heavy so that the writer doesn't have to be. It's important for the editor and the writer to get along beautifully. If people want to beat somebody up, they can beat me up because I don't care if anybody likes me. Just buy my books and like my (laughs) writing. While the writer is working with the editor and getting it to the point where it's, you know, to completion, do you have any suggestions or things that writers should and should not do during that process that can help them get the book to the best place? A lot of people I understand, and you know, if there are writers listening to this, I fully understand that the books that they have written are their precious babies. And when somebody comes in and says, I think you need to change all of this, it is not because they don't like the baby or they want to hurt the baby. They want it to be the best baby it possibly can. And these edits are not to, they should listen to their editor, especially if they're new writers and this is their first book. When you are a 28-time best-selling author, then you can call the shots. But for now, you should really just do as you're told. I know that people aren't going to like that, but it's true. The editors do know what they're doing. The publishing houses do know what they're doing. And your book will be better for it. So I would listen and play the game and go along, hit those deadlines, work on the cover, you know, be agreeable because you want a second book and you want a third book and you don't want to be marked as a troublemaker or somebody who's always late or something like that. For nonfiction books, when an author starts working with an editor, the editor can sometimes get involved in the outline. Whereas with a fiction book, oftentimes that outline was created so far in advance that by the time it gets to the editor, it's gone on very far before they have to reverse engineer the structure. Do you think that it might behoove the fiction process to submit the same way that nonfiction books are? No, I don't agree with that at all. (laughs) The reason being is that people who write nonfiction, people who write fiction usually are quite different. There are people who do both, you know, kudos to them. But nonfiction people are serious people who know their business and are, you know, experts in their field for the most part, or, you know, they're writing their memoirs. It's a life that they lived. It can't be edited. It's just the way that it is written that has to be worked on. With fiction, that is extremely subjective. I can't tell you how many times I've received a synopsis, the first three chapters, and it is polished and it is fantastic. And the first sentence of the fourth chapter is just rubbish because nobody has edited it. Uh. You know, they've gone to the workshops just to get in the door. With the first three chapters, you pretty much just get up to the inciting incident. You're not even on the journey of the book. You get your sagging middles, you know, and the Scooby-Doo endings. And, you know, (laughs) it's hard to write a fiction book and sustain that narrative straight through to a very successful end. 
So somebody can come in with 50 pages, something spectacular, but there's no guarantee they can finish it. And another thing on that is that even if they get all the way to the end of the book and the book needs to be rewritten, if they can't rewrite it, that can be problematic. I can't tell you how many times I've fought with different writers about, you know, their endings or their middles or, you know, I can't sell this because it's not working or what have you. And they just won't change it. So we go our separate ways. Doesn't happen that often, but it has happened. It happened when I was an editor fighting with uh, writers to get them to change different things for the better. As far as once the editor and the author kind of land on a final place or close to final place, and then it moves into kind of promotion of the book, once it gets to that point, do you start getting more involved again as far as on the marketing side and the promotional side? Once again, it depends on who the author is. Some people are very self sufficient and, you know, don't really need my input. But once the book is accepted, I go and chase the money and they start thinking marketing. But that's when the cover comes in, the cover copy comes in. It's all of that process. If it's nonfiction, we have a bunch of meetings with the publisher on the marketing, with their marketing people, the writer's marketing person, and so on. You know, PR and ads have to be approved. And then I stay out of it unless my author needs something. I go to the meetings. They're usually always over the phone, but I don't say anything unless I'm needed. I just like to keep an eye out, make sure that everything is going smoothly. And if I'm not needed, great. And if I'm needed to come in for whatever reason, I come in. And then it starts to sell. And, you know, I just keep track and, you know, retweet what my author's putting up on their Twitter feed and watch it become a huge success or not. (laughs) As the book gets closer to being published, at what point should a writer start working on their next book? The minute their book is handed in. When I start going out with a book, I'm like, what are you working on? Because if the editors ask me what else you've got, I need two or three ideas already in place to go. And we'll work on those before I even send out the book for most part. So when editors ask, I'll be like, yep, we already have these. Here's what else they're thinking of, books two and three, right behind this one. And I tell them, okay, I'm going out with this project. Don't think about it. You start working on the next book. And they start writing. Then when the book sells, they have to do edits. So they take a break and then they go back to the book that they were writing again. So it's like always keep writing, take a break to do promotion and then get back to writing. You talked about a five-year plan or a trajectory for a writer's career in the long run. What do you do to kind of work with them to get to that place that they want to be? And what's the ideal outcome? Again, it depends on who it is. If it's nonfiction, it's a different conversation than when it's fiction. And if it's fiction, I'm just like, plot out what you want to do next. You know, once you start getting going, like if you're writing cozy mysteries, you know, I want outlines of more cozy mysteries. I want to sign two, three book deals with their publisher. So, you know, if I get a three book deal, they're locked up now for three years. So I don't have to really worry about their next books for at least two years until the third book is handed in. And then I'm going to try and, you know, get them another deal. But with nonfiction, It depends. Some people only have in nonfiction, they have one book and then they're pretty much done. That's not the case with most of my clients. I always think, what is your book? What's the follow-up of this book going to be? With Buddy Velastro, he had another agent. I co-agented with uh, his talent management to do that book. And they originally wanted to do the big baking book. He was not big enough at the time. I was like, you should do the story of the bakery and how it came to be and how he became the cake boss. 
And he agreed. We only did 25 recipes. And that was the book that he did first. And the second book, because it was a two book deal, was the Baking with the Cake Boss book. And it was better to roll it out that way. I'm not his agent anymore. He's with his talent management doing his own thing because he's not with Discovery. But he's done a bunch of different books that have all rolled out. He's a really good example to show you start with your capstone, the book that everybody will go back to, the story of who you are, and then you have baking, and then you have cookies, and then you have you know this, that, the next thing. With nonfiction, it's good to think of how you're going to roll out your brand. Are you ready for what we call a series of seemingly random questions? Sure. First one, you mentioned imprints earlier, and I'm just curious, why are there so many imprints? There are obviously a few big publishing companies, but then there's a lot of smaller ones under those umbrella companies. Well, each imprint does, they do different types of books. So the imprint will let you know what kind of book you're going to get. If it's nonfiction, some people only do nonfiction, different imprint will only do cozy mysteries, and another one will just do self-help and so on and so forth. But they're all under the umbrella of one massive company. As far as titles, you mentioned at one point briefly coming up with titles and submitting. Where should a title be at when a writer submits to you? Where should a title be at when you submit to an editor? What's the latest point in which a title can be before it gets to the publishing phase? I don't put a lot of emphasis on titles because the publisher will have the final say. If they don't like the title that you came up with, they are going to change it, and it is their right to do so. I've sold things that didn't have a title and had a title where the printer is waiting so that we can print it. It's come to that. If you can't come up with something great, the publisher, they'll have meetings to come up with a decent title for it. Sometimes it can just be one word and the subtitle will say it all if it's nonfiction. But if it's fiction, a pithy title really goes a long way. So it's not vastly important when you're submitting to an agent, but you might want to have it locked down by the time it goes to an editor. As far as ideas that writers pitch to you and trends, are there any trends happening right now that writers should maybe not pursue just based on the fact that it's a trend and those won't perform that well? I can't think of anything that is, I mean, right now, everybody wanted rom-coms and they're just starting to come out. So I know that's going to sustain itself for a couple of years. So that's like the big thing at the moment. Anything like Gone Girl, all of those, you know, women in peril kind of books did remarkably well. But I've seen so many of those submissions lately that are not quite up to snuff. That's kind of on the decline now. I wouldn't send anything, and God forbid, don't send anything with a vampire in any genre. So that's all I can think of. What are the pros and cons of a writer self-publishing? Obviously, you know, in an ideal world, they might work with you and then get published through a big publishing company. But what about publishing it themselves? Are there benefits to that? You know, everything is different. Some people have had tremendous success self-publishing. One of the things that I say to people when they're like, I'm just going to self-publish this, I'm like, you know, people have done really well and that's your choice. It can cost you because you have to, you know, pay for all of your stuff yourself and the uploads and the cover and so on and so forth. And you have to make sure you get your ISBN. And it's a lot of work. I wouldn't want the headache, frankly. But it's going to be really hard to hit a bestseller list that way and to get into the mom and pop stores and to get any of the specials on Amazon and so on and so forth. 
you're not accounted like the New York Times doesn't account for self-published books because they're not going through any of their sales channels. You're not tied to any publication, so you're not getting the kind of exposure that you would if you are with a major imprint and part of their catalog. If you self-publish, it's really hard to get into Barnes & Noble if you're doing printed copies. You can't get on any of the tables in the front. You know, that's all paid for. That's bloody expensive. You can do well. I'm not saying that you won't, but you can't get into all the places that people think of when you think of, I'm going to go buy a book. There are millions and millions and millions of books out there. How on earth do you stand out if you don't understand the publishing business and marketing and so on and so forth? It's an uphill battle, but people have done well with it, as they keep saying. I wouldn't want the headache of it, frankly. Of all the writers who have ever lived, is there one writer that you wish that you could have worked with? And bonus, which fast food restaurant would you bring them to? It would definitely be Jane Austen. I've been to her birthplace. I've seen her grave living here in the UK. I would absolutely love to just have a conversation with her because I thought she lived a fascinating life and I love all of her books. And a fast food restaurant? (laughs) Yeah, you could be anything really if you want. I'm trying to think of something that's really British. I'd have to take her to like a Pret-a-Manger or a Cafe Nero, which are very, very British, just so she could see what the food was like now, as opposed to her time. (laughs) Second to last question, what is one piece of advice? If you had to choose one thing of all your learnings and time in this industry, what's one piece of advice that you'd give to those writers out there listening? Read. If you want to compete in a certain genre, read the books that are doing well in that genre to see how they work. So many people I know are like wanting to be a writer, but they don't read anything. And I think that's a huge mistake. You have to read to learn and to compete. Love it. The last question, drum roll, please. Harry, please hand me the envelope. (laughs) He's handing me the envelope. I'm opening it. The last question is, did you have fun today? I did. Awesome. It was fun. We're happy to hear that. And we appreciate you for taking the time to talk with us and kind of school us on what it means to be an agent and some insights for writers. So thank you, Erin. Thank you. Before we go, is there anything you want to plug, any projects you can talk about that you want to shout out? No. If you want to know what I'm doing, I mean, people can follow me on Twitter. I'm at EC Numata. Well, thank you again, Erin. Really appreciate your insights and your time. Yep. Thank you. Bye. All right. Thanks. And thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. <laughs>